All right, now we're going to talk about specific classes. The first class are called high ceiling, but more commonly known as loop diuretics. Now let me ask you this question, where do they work? <laughs> the loop of Headley. So, are these going to be stronger or weaker than one that works in the distal convoluted tubule? Stronger. stronger. And in fact, loop diuretics are the strongest diuretic that we have. Next, we will have what's called thiazide diuretics. These are weaker. They work in the distal convoluted tubule. These two are typical of what we just talked about. Then we have something that's called osmotic diuretic. It's basically a sugar that your body can't absorb. Uh, and uh, so what happens is it, it goes in the, uh, in, the distal, in the proximal convoluted tubule. And ordinarily, what does your body do to the glucose? No. Pulls it back in. But it can't pull this stuff in because it doesn't know what this stuff is. Now, I'll, I'll let someone else handle that. So what happens when you get to the collecting duct? You have excess solute, so you produce osmotic diuresis the same way you would in diabetes. in diabetes, except you're using an artificial sugar. So this is an osmotic diuretic. It's only used for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to keep kidney perfusion in shock. Why would you want that? Because in shock, the medications we use to treat shock sometimes make the kidney stop filtering. And this prevents that from happening. Okay, next we have potassium sparing diuretics. What do most diuretics cause? Potassium loss or decrease. Now, what do you think potassium sparing diuretics are going to do? You're going to hold on to potassium. Now, what do you think the major side effect of that could be besides type of lemia? hyperkalemia. What do you think would happen if we mixed a potassium sparing with a thiazide or loop diuretic? They might balance each other out. Or one could win, but you don't know until you check. All right, and then last thing we have is carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. These are not used for their diuretic effect. They're used for increased ocular pressure. Yeah, something like that. Apparently, we're not going to have any questions on that one. That's just so you can hear it mentioned and then forget it later. And then one day, you might see it used and go, oh, yeah, Dr. Heyman talked about that. All right, let's talk a little bit more detail. Um, loop diuretics act in the blah, blah, blah. They're the strongest ones we have. Here are the drug names, because we've already talked about pretty much everything. This is the one you need to know, furosemide or Lasix. I will tell you that sometimes, if a patient's been on Lasix constantly for a long time, they'll stop responding to it, in which case you switch them to one of the others. So you may see Bumex used. Works the same way, just a slightly different molecule to shake things up. Well, you do, and then it still doesn't work well. All right, now, important things for you to know. If you give this by mouth, how long does it take to start working? 
No, by mouth, one hour. How long does it last? Eight hours. What's the latest you should give this drug by mouth to a normal patient? Three to four o'clock. Four o'clock plus eight equals? Okay, 1600 plus eight is midnight. That's really too late. So really, two o'clock should be about the latest. That's 10 o'clock. Now, if you give it IV, how long does it take to start? Five minutes. How long does it last? Two hours. In general, which of these do we prefer? If we need it now, IV. And this is going to be the drug of choice for treating fluid overload in heart failure. Um, it's metabolized in the liver and excreted by the kidneys, interestingly enough. So if a patient has renal impairment or liver impairment, that may need a dose adjustment. So we're going to use it for pulmonary edema, major thing here. Heart failure, edema, we can use it in hypertension, but it's not very often used because it doesn't last that long. Say again. Okay, yeah, chronic heart failure. Okay, loop diuretics work even in patients with severe renal impairment. Now, in severe renal impairment, what happens to urine production? goes down, but you can still make them produce more by using Lasix or any loop diuretic. Adverse effects, we already talked about most of these. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, just like you can squeeze the pancreas and get a little more insulin, you can squeeze the kidneys and get a little more urine, but only with loop diuretics. All right, so we talked about the electrolyte problems. We talked about hypotension. So as a result, monitor blood pressure at home, have the patient do that, and tell them to get up slowly. Hypokalemia, we talked about that. Ototoxicity, what other drugs are ototoxic that we know about? Vancomycin and aminoglycosides. So if a patient's got those also, guess what? Risk goes up. Hyperglycemia, so caution with diabetic patients. Elevated uric acid, which can cause flares of what problem? G -g Gout. And then it can also cause changes in lipids, calcium, and magnesium, but that's not as common. Really, these are the ones you need to remember the most because these are the ones that are going to cause the most problems. These are more rare. Why would it hypotension? Because you, if you, if you dump off too much water, there's not enough water left in the system to pump well, so that lowers blood pressure. Right. So there's just less fluid to go around. It will try to, but sometimes we give drugs to prevent that too. Right. You can, yes, you can use Lasix to lower blood pressure. The reason we don't use it for hypertension very often 
is because it only lasts eight hours. And we want them to have 24-hour control. And we don't want to have them get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. Right. You can, you can use it for it, but it's usually later on, after the thiazide stopped working. So you start with the thiazide. When that stops working, then you bump them up to Lasix. But you, don't, you try not to use Lasix because it's, not, it's just not as good for blood pressure control as a thiazide, unless they have heart failure or some other fluid overload problem. All right, interacts with, um, what's this first one right here? Digoxin. Now, we're not going to talk about digoxin until the second half of this course, but anything that interacts with potassium interacts with digoxin. Other ototoxic drugs, potassium-sparing diuretics, we talked about that. Other hypertension drugs. Will make other hypertension drugs work better or worse? Will it lower the blood pressure more or less if you give them with other blood pressure drugs? It'll lower the blood pressure more. Yeah, meaning the blood pressure will be less. And then they also interact with NSAIDs, interestingly enough, to uh, cause kidney damage. All right, next one, thiazide diuretics. The major drug here is called hydrochlorothiazide. Say it. Okay. Hydrochlorothiazide, also known as HCTZ. I don't think they're allowed to put HCTZ in the, in the chart anymore in the hospital for orders. So now you just have to go hydrochlorothiazide. Um, action. It's going to block sodium chloride in the distal convoluted tubule. It will not work when glomerular filtration rate goes down too far. So when it stops working, then we start using loop diuretics. Um, it's given PO, takes about two hours to onset, and it peaks around two to six hours. But it lasts longer in the body. Want to give it earlier in the day. Most people nowadays get it once a day. And the two most common uses for it are blood pressure and edema. It is actually considered the first line drug of choice for treating uncomplicated hypertension. What does uncomplicated hypertension mean? Hypertension and there's no other diseases involved. Adverse effects, gosh, does that look familiar? Yeah, same as? Lasix. All right, now, HCTZ dosing. You want to use the smallest dose possible, and you want to start at a low dose. So typically, 6.25 to 12.5 are going to be the doses. Now, what thiazides are just not very good diuretics. They're not good at making you lose pee. But guess what they are good at? Controlling. Controlling blood pressure. So in the old days, when we used to try and use these to actually get rid of water, they used 50 milligrams twice a day. Well, guess what we found out? Toxic. It's toxic at those levels. So now we use very low doses, and we typically only give them once a day. So what used to be considered a very low dose of 25 milligrams a day is now quite a common dose. 
In the old days, they used to give 50 milligrams twice a day, but that is toxic. So we prefer to give no more than 25 a day, and you'll see 6.25 and 12.5 a lot. Now, the nice thing about this stuff is that it is dirt cheap. So if you get a prescription of this from your, from your physician, guess how much it's going to cost? It's about $4 for a 100 day supply. Now, if you get Norvask, how much is that going to cost? Two-day? Yeah, with or without insurance. With insurance, it's going to be about $30 for 30. It's about a dollar a day with insurance. Without insurance, it's going to be three or four times that. I don't keep up with the current Norvask prices, but this stuff is dirt cheap. And if they order 25 milligram tablets, but you break them in half, $2 a day. Although if you go to Walmart, no, Publix has the, the zero meds, right? Like $0 for certain medications. I'm not sure if this is included in those. It's maybe it's only antibiotics that are, okay. $4 med, yeah. All right, now, in these, in these low doses, 6.25 and 12.5, they are oftenly, often combined with other blood pressure medications because just a little bit of HCTZ makes almost every other blood pressure medication work better. Because, let me ask you this question, if you lower blood pressure, what's the normal response to that? Increase heart rate? What else? Basoconstrict and increase blood volume. So adding just the tiniest bit of HCTZ can prevent that increased blood volume. All right, now we're going to do the potassium sparing diuretics. There's two different kinds of potassium sparing, ones that affect aldosterone and ones that don't. So first, the ones that do, spironolactone, also known as aldactone. It's an old drug. It's dirt cheap. And what it does is it antagonizes aldosterone. Now, what do we say aldosterone normally does? How does it retain sodium? It produces more sodium-potassium pumps. So you're going to pump sodium back in, and you're going to secrete some potassium. Now, this does the opposite. So what are we going to do now? We're going to keep our potassium and we're going to release the sodium. So it's going to cause diuresis and what's going to happen to potassium? It's going to go up. Now, we use these not for the diuretic effect because they're crappy diuretics. We're going to use these because of their effect on aldosterone. Because aldosterone is an essential part of some hypertension and portal hypertension and heart failure. So liver disease, which is portal hypertension and heart failure, aldosterone is an essential part of those disease processes. So we're using it mainly for its effect against aldosterone in those problems. What two problems? Liver and heart failure. Liver disease and heart failure. Liver disease and heart failure. And what are we using it for? 
for the anti-aldosterone effect, not for the diuretic effect, because they are crappy diuretics. They just don't produce much pee. All right, the adverse effects. Hyperkalemia and then a variety of endocrine effects, such as they cause men to start having female-type characteristics, such as testicular atrophy and gynecomastia. What's gynecomastia? Man boobs, yes. <laughs> They go away when you go off the medication. But, which is worse? Not being able to breathe? Or man poops. I don't know, that's tough. At this age, at this age, you might be inclined to say, I'll give up breathing. But when you're 50 or 60 or 70, you might think otherwise. <laughs> Interactions. They interact with other diuretics and other potassium-affecting things. What do we say? If it interacts with potassium, what will interact? Digoxin will interact with it. Remember that. That's important. Now, the non-potassium-sparing, um, or the non-aldosterone-potassium-sparing diuretic, that's wrong. It should say non-aldosterone-affecting is what this should say. The non-aldosterone affecting one is called triamterene. What these are going to do is they're going to inhibit sodium-potassium pumps. So aldactone prevents them from coming about in the first place, but it also inhibits the effect of aldosterone in other places. This only inhibits the sodium-potassium pump. If we combine this, with HCTZ, we get a drug called Maxide or Diazide. You will see this a lot. I bet you that three or four of you have patients who are on this right now in that nursing home. The reason they're on it is because HCTZ works pretty well for blood pressure. And triamterene, but what's the major side effect with HCTZ? Hypokalemia. What's the major side effect with triamterene? Hyperkalemia. What happens when you put the two together? They balance each other out. And guess how much this stuff costs? Dirt cheap. So it's dirt cheap and the two side effects balance each other out. So a lot of elderly patients are on these because they've been on them for 20 or 30 years and they still work okay for them. Hyperkalemia, spironolactone, and triamterene, the two potassium-sparing ones. All right, now we're going to move away from the traditional ones, and we're going to talk about mannitol. Mannitol is an osmotic diuretic. Remember we said it's a, it's a, uh, a six-carbon sugar that your body can't use because your body doesn't have any receptors for it. So what happens to it? It gets filtered with everything else, but it can't get reabsorbed, which increases the 
it increases the osmolality of the filtrate. And we can't reabsorb it because we have no receptors, which means we're going to, we're going to cause more diuresis. So we can use this to prevent renal failure in patients with shock. We can use it for increased cranial pressure. And we can also use it for increased ocular pressure. All right, those are the diuretics. What's the first class? What's the strongest one? Diuretics. Loop diuretics. What's the next class? Thiazide. What's the next class? Potassium sparing. What are the two, two drugs there? Aldactone and triamterene. What's the one that we use in the ICU for it works different. We just talked about it. Mannitol, which is a six-carbon sugar. And it causes what kind of diuresis? Osmotic. Okay. What's the, what's the drug you need to know for loop diuretics? Lasix. What's it used for? The major thing it's used for. Treat fluid overload and what kind of patient? Heart failure. And what type of edema is the worst in a heart failure patient? Pulmonary, because that's the stuff that will kill them immediately. The other stuff make them not feel good, but pulmonary edema is lethal if it's untreated. Um, what's the main drug you need to know for the thiazides? HCTZ, also known as hydrochlorothiazide. And what's its main use? Hypertension. Okay, we're done with diuretics. Okay, we're go yes, ma'am. Can you only combine the thiazide diuretics with No. No, but well, those drugs—that's what those drugs are. It's just a combination. You can combine them with anything you want, but it comes as one pill. Um, maxide and diazide are one pill combination. Right. Okay. Let's do the introduction to the renal disorders and we'll pick them up tomorrow. Yes. So, um, we already talked about BUN, creatinine. We, you can also use electrolytes, which we've already learned. The major electrolytes that are going to reflect renal function are sodium, potassium, and chloride. Now, What's going to happen to these three things when kidney function goes down? Okay. If a patient is in renal failure, all three will go up because everything will go down. But there's also something in renal insufficiency. Uh, I can't remember the exact name of it. It's like reduced competence or something. But what will happen is a patient drinks a lot of water. What gets filtered out? Everything. Everything. And then we're supposed to reabsorb it. Well, what happens in these patients as kidney function goes down, as long as glomerular filtration rate is still up, they'll filter out just fine, but they can't bring the sodium back in. So what happens in those patients is they drink water. Because what are we supposed to do to keep our, our kidneys healthy? Drink water. 
how much water are we supposed to drink a day? Oh, drink three liters. And if you're trying to lose weight, you should drink five liters. Right? I mean, that's what it says in Woman's Day. And, and fitness world and men's health. Drink lots of water. Drinking water suppresses. But in elderly people, guess what's going to happen? You're going to tell them to drink water. And the next thing you know, they're going to get hyponatremic. And they're going to get shaky and confused. And they're going to have seizures. And they're going to go to a coma. And they're going to die. <laughs> because all because they drank too much water. Okay, they probably aren't going to go into the coma and die, but they will end up in the hospital. It's very important that those kind of pe- patients restrict their water. It's usually like only a liter per day, which, you know, some of you are like, that's okay, I don't drink that much. But you drink other stuff like coffee and Coke and whatever else. So they are, they're restricted to only one liter of water-based fluid a day. Sure, go ahead. Tell an awful story. I used to work with a mentally handicapped, and this girl was on water. Um, they can't hear you in the back. Uh, I used to work with a mentally handicapped, and the girl was on one liter a day for the amount of water, and she didn't understand that she could only have one liter of water, so we used to freeze the water bottles, and she would walk around all day just with her water bottle. But she was thirsty all the time. It was awful. So yeah. Bad. Yeah. And the patients won't like it either, so they'll start drinking when they shouldn't. Um, so estimated glomerular filtration rate. Once the rate goes below 60, we call that insufficiency, renal insufficiency. If it goes below 30, we call that renal failure. Uh, the norm, what's the normal urine volume? How much should a person produce? Approximately how many liters, milliliters per hour? The minimum is what? 30 milliliters per hour. Below that is considered what we call oligouria, which means small amounts of urine. And we'll pick up with urinalysis tomorrow. Okay, by the way, when you give potassium, what's the major assessment you should do before you give that? Before you give potassium, what do you have to assess? No, that's calcium. No. Before you give potassium, what's the major thing you need to assess? I told you, remember this last time, no blank, no K. Which is urine output. 